Evening, everyone. Um, just before we start, I've just been asked, can we just have a show of hands uh, from everyone who's coming to Gibbs for the first time tonight? Cool. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Suresh Patel. I'm going to be moderating tonight's forum. And we'd firstly like to thank Gibbs for giving us this platform to talk about cannabis in a business context. Um, I'd also like to thank all the panelists here tonight who are going to be sharing the insights with the audience. And I'd especially like to thank Myrtle and Jules from the Ducker Couple, who have over the past few months become my mentor and actually shaped the way I think about cannabis legalization in a more sustainable and humane way. And hopefully I can teach others the same. Now, tonight's not about the benefits of legalization with all the billions flowing into this industry. And we won't be talking about how to get a license either. This forum is essentially unpacking how and why the current way of thinking about cannabis legalization is incorrect and illogical. And that there are far greater opportunities by allowing free market with the informal sector leading the charge. Now, cannabis legalization is here to stay. Whether you support it or not, there is no turning back. Now, that's the scary part because at the rate that we are moving, if the wrong cannabis bill is set in place, a few privileged will benefit and the vast majority of South Africans are going to be excluded. Whilst we sit in Gibbs tonight in this auditorium in Ilovo, I just want to bring to everyone's attention that every single day there are still people being arrested for cannabis. The other worrying thing is the media, and I'd like to ask the audience not to take cannabis-related articles at face value. I used to spend far too much time every day Googling three terms under the news tab, which was Cannabis South Africa, Marijuana South Africa, Dhaka South Africa, just to try and figure out what's happening. And I've actually stopped doing that because quite often the, the authors of these articles chase sensationalist headlines and the content of the articles are quite often the literal inaccuracies. So tonight, I'll just tell the audience that this forum is as real as it gets. I'm going to briefly introduce all of our panelists um, who are going to be sharing their areas of expertise. And at the end of our forum, we're going to open up the floor for questions. If I can just ask everyone to jot down the questions, keep it towards right at the end, and to keep the questions contextual and on topic so that we can try and answer you best as possible. Now, first on our panel, uh, to my left, is Paul Michael. He is a partner at Schindler's Attorneys, and he will be explaining the legal aspects of cannabis legalization in a South African context. After Paul, we have um, Hein Krewel, who is an agricultural economist from University of Stellenbosch, and he will be talking about how cannabis can benefit communities across South Africa by taking a more free market approach. After Hein, we've got Gigi Alcock. He's a very well-known author, speaker and entrepreneur specifically within the informal sector. And finally, after Gigi is Myrtle Clark and she is one of the founders of Fields of Green for All. This is a non-profit organization that promotes equitable drug policy reform. And Myrtle will basically encapsulate our entire discussion and drive home why we need to make sure that our cannabis policies 
benefit everybody and not just a few. And on to Paul. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I immediately note an irony before I get going, which is that prior to decriminalization in terms of the judgment, when we were talking about human rights, it was very difficult to get an audience like this together. But now that we're talking about the business of cannabis, everybody's ears have perked up. But I'm glad we've got your attention now. So that's a good thing. Um, we don't have much time, so this is going to be very summary. The judgment of last year of the Constitutional Court was the culmination of a long battle um, that involved many cogs in the machine. There were many <coughs> contributors to the effort. And we now have a situation where personal and private use of cannabis by an adult has been decriminalized. Um, of course, a decriminalization is different to a legalization, whereas um, the one allows a certain type of behavior to simply fly under the radar of the criminal authorities or, or criminal uh, justice enforcement. The other one, if it was fully legalized, would involve industry, actual regulations, um, acts which tell you exactly what you can and cannot do in relation to cannabis and in relation to users of cannabis. Um, the judgment was very expressed that there was still a legitimate state's objective that the Constitutional Court felt was served by maintaining a prohibition on the dealing in cannabis. So whatever, development, whatever developments are going to take place, um, they are only mandated to take place insofar as allowing what the judgment said, which is the personal and private use of cannabis. So ultimately, if a cannabis industry is going to be allowed, um, that's going to be something that will be decided upon. It'll be a policy consideration by our lawmakers. Having said that, there is, um, the, the, the judgment was intended to be interim. It, it says that it only operates for two years or in the intervening two years that we afford Parliament to legislate in order to fill the gap created by the judgment, the order of constitutional invalidity. Um, the, the Constitutional Court decided not to put any strict definition, firstly on what amount constitutes um, personal use, and secondly what they declined to define was what constitutes a private space. But having said that, there is this bill that's now floating around. And the bill hasn't been published yet, but it seems to have gotten out onto the cannabis networks. And it is a bill that is reactive to the judgment. Um, it doesn't seem to go any further than what Parliament has been mandated to do. But notably, what it does do is that it sets certain amounts. Um, I'm not going to go through those. We don't have time. But for example, um, a person can possess eight mature cannabis plants. They can possess up to a kilogram of dried cannabis product. Um, it also does define what we consider to be a private space because this has been up in the air for the last few months. What it says is that a private space is any space that the public do not have access to as a matter of right. And then, of course, what a public space is 
is the converse of that if you have access to it as a matter of right, that's a public space. So that, that starts getting the juices flowing as to possible private members clubs or even just a sign on the door that talks about rights of admission being reserved because then you don't have the right uh, to access that as a member of the public without the, the permission of, of the establishment owners. Um, it allows for sharing. Um, those defined amounts are entitled to be shared between individuals, but it's expressed in not allowing dealing. So presumably, if we are going to allow dealing, we're going to require another act altogether, um, which would be titled something like the Cannabis Industry Bill or whatever the case may be. What hasn't really changed since the judgment is any kind of uh, formalization of uh, or, or hasn't uh, changed as a result of the judgment is uh, the laws related to medicinal cannabis. In terms of Section 22C1B of the Medicines Act, you've actually always been allowed to grow cannabis, but it just didn't seem that anybody knew about this until uh, it became apparent that cannabis was going to be decriminalized. And then all of a sudden, the Medicines Control Council, as it then was, issued these guidelines as to how we're going to plug um, a law that was never intended to apply to cannabis into the cannabis space, into the uh, medicinal cannabis space, and they released other sorts of guidelines that I won't take you through related to how to put together a site master file if you were to apply for um, a cannabis license. But really what the problem with this is, is that it's onerous and very expensive. Um, it certainly doesn't allow easy access um, of the, you know, the, the, the poorest in our society to be able to obtain licenses to earn a living off the growing of cannabis. Um, in fact, it seems that it's only really going to be the already rich or the multinationals who are going to be able to get cannabis licenses. So as um, the speakers who come after me will talk to, this I think is a great pity in our society. Um, and of course, it being strict and onerous and involving things like the Pharmacy Council and the registration of medicines, um, even if somebody were now to come up with a compound from active pharmaceutical ingredients derived from cannabis, you're looking at about a turnaround time of another five years before you can expect to see a cannabis product or a cannabis medicine um, sitting on the shelves that can be dispensed by a pharmacist in reaction to a script. But what did happen, however, was that there was this government gazette that was um, signed or, or changed to the law that was signed in terms of an exemption to the Medicines Act, which took place on the 15th of this month, which says that CBD, cannabidiol, which is one of the cannabinoids, one of the dominant cannabinoids in uh, cannabis, uh, below a certain threshold is not <coughs> exempted from the Medicines Act. So, you can sell it, um, you don't need to be a pharmacist to sell it, this is an over-the-counter product, and you don't need to get a script from a doctor to be able to purchase this. But having said that, having spoken to some of the experts in the field, the thresholds um, are so low, apparently, that we are talking about um, therapeutic complementary medicine. We're not talking about any sorts of levels that could be used to effectively treat any medis, um, medicinal um, conditions, and it seems that that was probably intentional on the part of the regulators 
they're very afraid, they're being very reactive at the moment, they're not quite sure what to do with cannabis medicine or with the cannabis industry, so it seems that they're erring on the side of caution. Hemp is another big one. Um, as the law stands, and this hasn't been changed by the judgment, there is no distinction between cannabis per se and hemp. Um, in fact, in biology, there is no real distinction. They are both cannabis plants. The only difference is that one is uh, selectively grown in order to produce high quantities of THC or CBD, whereas the other one would be uh, either grown specifically for CBD in mind or for use of the seeds or the fiber and all of the products that can be made with those. We're talking about sustainable housing, uh, socks, biofuels, you name it, almost anything can be made from hemp. But there isn't this distinction, and the distinction came probably, or the, the absence of the distinction probably came from the fact that you grow a field of hemp next to a field of high-grade cannabis, and within one or two generations, cross-pollination has taken place, and you don't really have a distinction between the two anymore. So, in theory, unfortunately, it does seem that at the moment, if you wanted to grow commercial hemp, you would have to go through the same process as getting a medicinal license to grow hemp, which is in terms of Section 22C1B of the Medicines Act. But there has been a lot of media attention um, in the last few months about these so-called hemp research permits that have been handed out to about 30 or so recipients. Um, and what I managed, I was at an event yesterday, a Mail and Guardian event, and what we were able to establish is that despite what some people think, that this entitles you to grow commercial hemp and to be able to supply the market, that, in fact, is not so. This was confirmed by Griffith Molewa of SAPRA, that's the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, who said that each of these recipients can grow no more than two hectares of hemp, and that hemp needs to be maintained to the facility and handed over to government, if not churned back into the soil. So at the moment, there is no commercial hemp industry. And if we are going to have a commercial hemp industry, we're going to require changes to the law because the current laws, as far as we've been able to establish, simply do not allow for it. Um, so hopefully the results of these so-called hemp permits is going to be to convince government, the Department of Agriculture, etc., that this is an industry that we want to get involved in. And um, in fact, it... It was in Tito Mboweni's budget speech of a month or two back where he took the time to mention that they're looking into cannabis as a way to generate additional revenue for the fiscus. So as to whether or not that's going to happen is anybody's guess, but I somehow doubt that um, our Minister of Finance is going to mention it in a budget speech if it's not at least a realistic possibility. I was then also tasked with comparing us to other jurisdictions, which is a difficult one because I think, as I've made clear, we are presently in a state of limbo. We have gone far further in terms of the judgment of the Constitutional Court than have many jurisdictions around the world. But of course, we haven't gone as far as other jurisdictions. We are at the moment in this weird hybrid space where we've got this focus on uh, the personal and private use of cannabis, but of course the question is begged, if somebody is allowed to use and possess cannabis, well then, 
if uh, they don't have the space, the private space, to be able to do it, or for that matter, if they, are, uh, they, they, they aren't blessed with green fingers, why is it that we are discriminating against them? If they want to get their hands on cannabis, uh, there's, there's no reason that we ought not to formalize the industry and bring the tax revenue into the fiscus so that we can use all of that money that we were using, using to arrest stoners to put it into the building of hospitals, schools, um, rehabilitation centers, etc. So the only thing that I'll say, but I'm going to let the, the, the following speakers talk more to this, is that we do need to look to foreign jurisdictions to learn from the mistakes that they've made. It would be a pity to repeat the mistakes of foreign jurisdictions. Um, but we do need to tailor fit it to our own legislative regime because we don't firstly want to irrationally criminalize things. Um, for example, casinomics that are going to happen whether or not they are criminalized. Um, and certainly at a high level, we don't want to deprive the poorest of the poor of the opportunity to pull themselves out of poverty by means of a formalized and established cannabis industry. So to the extent that we obviously do need to regulate, if we make the regulations so tight as to exclude those people, it would be a completely wasted opportunity. So even though we do have this bill and there might be follow-on bills, there will still be this process of public consultation. All of you will be able to, if you want to, react to the bill and to give your input. And I would encourage you to do that if you have something to say. But at the moment, we only really have the judgment um, and this personal and private use. So to the extent that that's going to change, I think that my co-panelists are going to tell you or give you some insight into how that should change, accounting for uh, the variables that they'll take you through. Thank you very much. Yeah, next, we're going to have Hein. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I actually just would like to uh, clarify, but from uh, Suresh's uh, introduction, said that I'm an agricultural economist. I teach in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Salamash, but I'm a development economist. Um, and so my focus with the, this uh, line of investigation or line of inquiry into cannabis and its potential for um, providing inclusive proper growth in South Africa comes from that type of sense that more needs to be done at different levels from different sources to try and create a more inclusive economy. We hear this in policy documents all the time. Politicians use this term of inclusive growth all along, but what it actually means is still a quite a nebulous concept. So I feel in the context of this specific industry, which has a history within the country, and our, my research is specifically focused on the Eastern Cape, we have the cultural institutions, we have the background, people have already have the technical abilities. So it would be, actually, it's something that is already there that can be harnessed, that needs to be highlighted, that needs to be actually driven towards a, that can lead us to what the National Development Plan speaks about, creating a million jobs in agriculture by 2030. And, and mainly focused on um, irrigated horticulture. So this is an uh, ideal opportunity for us to actually then make work of these policy documents that we have in place. 
how can we actually then set up something and design policies so that we don't, um, as Paul Michael mentioned, have the exclusion of ordinary citizens um, at the expense of uh, uh, trying to generate more revenue and have, since what can be termed elite capture of the industry, big corporations coming in. And this is actually already happening in one of our neighboring countries who's um, uh, handed out licenses now already, that it's being captured in a way that is excluding people on the ground who's been part of this industry all along, who's been struggling against the type of oppressive uh, uh, and actually brutal policing of, of people, basically. Right? So, um, in essence, what I'm actually trying to say in a very long-winded way is that since there's a, there's a large proliferation of scientific research on the impacts of cannabis, etc., there's not enough social science-driven research on what impacts it could have for us. So this is something that I'm trying to get more university-based intellectuals involved in, um, people in the agricultural space, which I've now got some exposure to. And there seems to be a lot of goodwill towards how we can do this in a positive and a constructive manner. Um, and again, as Paul Michael mentioned, we need to learn lessons from other jurisdictions and what has been done. But I think that in terms of regulation, we should leave this industry as a self-regulating industry. So I consider myself a Marxist, but this is an instance where I feel a more libertarian approach is necessary. So I will see Anne Rand's uh, vision of, for, for this industry, only for this industry. <laughs> um, yeah, that's about, more, to sum up, we need more social science there is a research. We need economists to start thinking like humans and not like, I mean, because we, economists like to think of ourselves and we say, as scientists and we're very scientific and as long as we can do some regressions, then it's a cool thing. We need to be, take cognizance of what is happening on the ground, how people are influenced, because at the end of the day, uh, our objects of research are not molecules, but sentient thinking human objects. Thank you, that's what I've... Thanks, Haim, and over to Gigi. Sure. So, contrary to my uh, companions on the right, I'm, I'm, I grew up in a mud hut in a Zulu village in a place called Msinga in KwaZulu-Natal, arguably one of the centers of um, dacha growing um, in the country. And... Um, my only qualifications were stick fighting and goat herding, so um, I come from that perspective. Um, so Msinga is one of the most violent, um, was the most violent place in South Africa. It was the um, poorest district in South Africa um, uh, 30, 40 years ago. Today, it's still the, um, one of the poorest, it is officially the poorest district in South Africa. Um, and uh, quite interestingly, it used to, Dacha was always grown there. They call it Mtunzwenkuku, which means the shade of the chickens. Uh, every household had one, and the chickens nested and, and uh, sat under the Dacha bush. Um, but it was grown very much by kind of guokos. Uh, and, um, and what happened was that most of the people in Msinga, being a, a very uh, poor area, were migrant workers in the cities, uh, Kimberley for diamonds, the mining industry in, in uh, Johannesburg, 
uh, and uh, the construction industry and the security industry. The Zulus from Singo are known as being quite violent. There's always a joke that uh, um, if you um, if you uh, married a, a, a Jew and a, and a Zulu, you would end up with the security guard who owned the building. Um, <laughs> so, um, what happened was that the um, the the massive unemployment in the kind of early 80s meant that uh, all the people who were employed came racing home, and they um, and and they entered the dacha industry. In fact, uh, you had half the people were in, into guns. Um, and, uh, and the Dacha allowed them a huge opportunity to buy guns because they would go to the police and the South African Defence Force troopies and they would trade um, R4s and R5s for little bags of Dacha. Um, and uh, at one stage, Msinga had far more guns than anywhere else in South Africa. They outgunned MK or SADF probably at one stage <laughs> per, per person. Um, but what happened was that the people who didn't want to be into illegal activities like gun running, the, uh, the taxi industry, um, assassins, what they call Ngabi, are all uh, from uh, Msinga. And, and uh, those who wanted to be legal basically went into Dacha. And instead of the Gokos owning the Dacha, basically um, you had young men, middle-aged men, I guess, uh, who had come out of the cities who started growing it on a far more commercial basis with irrigation, uh, and, and, and planting various types and, and trying to be a bit more um, professional about it. Um, and a few uh, years ago, I paddled down the Tugela River to the mouth and uh, through the districts of Msinga and Nganda and a few others, for about 150 kilometers we paddled and on both sides of the um, river were scores and scores of, of little um, gardens. Uh, so, you know, and these, each one of them was between 10 and 50 square meters. Uh, and so, I mean, this was the Tugela River, not even counting all the other rivers that enter into it. Wherever there was a river or a stream coming into this area, there was um, gardens on, on either side. Um, the police used to come in and uh, burn the, in fact, initially they, they used to burn it, and then the pilots would fly through the smoke and get all dizzy. Um, or deliberately fly through the smoke. Um, and uh, then they sprayed it with Agent Orange, and uh, then the police got all sorts of claims for guys getting sterile and this and that. Um, so they, and then they ran out of budget, and the problems were in the townships, so they stopped, and, and so uh, Dacha proliferated in those environments. Um, and a while later, my brother and I were cycling through, um, through one of the areas in Msinga, and... Um, these ladies in front of us had these bags on their heads, uh, and uh, they uh, dropped the bags at the sight of us and ran into the bushes screaming, and we shouted at them to come back, and uh, they uh, came back scolding us, you know, <laughs> you know all, whites, all whites look the same, you know, and they, um, they, they, so we started chatting about the dacha, and they made about 5,000 rand per bag the size of dacha, and... Um, which is a fortune in Msinga, and hence the investment in, in pipes and irrigation and, and pumps and stuff like that. Uh, and a short while later, um, and this was very interesting but not that relevant, and a short while later I was at a, a friend of ours in the area who has a tyre business, and uh, I said, how's business? And he said, no, business is really shit. So I said, why? He said, well, for a change, the police came and burnt all the dacha. So I said, what impact does that have on your tyre business? And he said, he loses 40% of his business a week after the police have uh, burnt the dacha. It gives you an idea of the impact of that on the local economy. That's just on tires. 
Um, in fact, there's an entire Bucky Brigade um, in Msinga that, uh, that uh, move the dacha back and forth. Whenever you ask them, you say, what do you, um, what do, you do with your Bucky? They say, ah, oh, we go to Joburg's Tingisam and Benji's. We sell peaches. Um, but there's not a single peach tree in Msinga. So... Um, so uh, Anyway, following on this uh, story of the tires, I was quite curious, and I came to Johannesburg. I followed the whole um, uh, line, and, and basically that 5,000 rand bag of um, dacha that sold for 5,000 rand out of the field in Msinga sells for 400,000 rand in the streets of Johannesburg. That's one bag of dacha. Imagine the, the, the scale of this uh, business. Um, and uh, in my books, Gasinomics and Gasinomic Revolution, I looked at the informal sector across a broad industry. And I think the informal sector gives us a sense of, A, the scale of this, but also where it's potentially going to go. Um, and if you look at other invisible economies, the, um, the, the goat industry as an example, um, Somalia sells 540 million US dollars worth of goats every single year. It's about 3 million goats to Saudi Arabia. Uh, completely, and you know, if you said Somalia, it would be guns and, and that kind of thing, and, and, and it's primarily goats. Uh, the goat industry in South Africa is worth about one and a half billion rand a year. In fact, we import 300,000 goats from Namibia and Botswana every single year. Saudi Arabia has asked if they could buy a million goats from us. They'll trade it for oil, um, and we don't sell a single goat to them because we don't have enough. Um, so you have this goat market. The muti industry, which is primarily uh, plant-based in Africa, plants have protective and healing power. Um, it's worth 3 billion rand, employs about 300,000 people. <coughs> 3 billion rand is 6% of our national health budget. Um, and again, this muti industry is under bridges and marketplace and stuff. We don't recognize it. Um, if we look at the, um, the, the, the food industry, um, uh, we created a massive industry for cheese slices into something called a gorda, which is a, um, a, a quarter loaf of bread with slap chips and acher and poloni, uh, worth one and a half billion rand a year to, to parmalette and cheese slices. If you look at the, the food industry, what I call gasikos, it's worth 87 billion rand a year. By comparison, KFC is worth about uh, three to four billion rand a year. So it gives you an idea, 87 billion rand is in little caravans and little quarter shops, amablady, gazebos, whatever, in that environment. All, by the way, incredibly um, attuned to the local business, um, to the local tastes and flavors. There's a concept of locavore, which is providing food and stuff that, that's relevant to that area. Um, if we look at the spaza market in South Africa, it's worth about 250 billion rand, about 100,000 spazas selling um, dry goods, um, FMCG branded goods. Um, and this has been taken over very much by the immigrants, Somalis, <coughs> Pakistanis, Ethiopians. Um, it's worth 250 billion rand a year, and actually it is completely challenging and disrupting the formal retail sector. So ShopRite are, sh are losing huge volume to it, so are Pick and Pay, Cambridge, Boxer, whoever it might be. And it's a very good example of how this informal sector can and will disrupt um, the formal sector um, because it's more in tune, it's closer to consumers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's a whole story around that. Um, but so, so we have this massive, I mean, I'm not even talking about the taxi industry, but the hair industry and, and, and this informal sector um, represents probably um, 15 to 20% of our GDP. 
Um, I, I feel it's bigger than that. Um, we talk about 27% unemployment in this country. We should actually say 27% formal unemployment because if you took the informal economy into account, the reality is we're probably sitting at 10 to, to probably 12% unemployment. Um, and this is all relevant to the, to the Dach industry for a number of reasons. Um, the, the first is that we have this massive invisible economy that is continuing there despite uh, anything else, um, and despite the legality of it or not. Um, very efficient, very sophisticated industry. Um, and, and, and very importantly, creating livelihoods in some of the poorest parts of our country. Uh, livelihoods uh, in places like the Eastern Cape and in, uh, in Msinga and other districts like that. Um, where we're sitting in a society where we have massive inequality and more importantly have no incomes and, and uh, formal jobs, uh, this disrupting this could, could have massive consequences to our social, um, social unrest. And, and you know, if you think service delivery protests are a problem now, imagine if you remove that formal economy um, from that. So, um, and, and interestingly, worldwide, we have two kind of business models emerging. The gigabyte economy on the one side is very much about fragmented, personalized businesses like uh, the Airbnbs and Ubers and, and so on of the world. And then on the other side, we have these mega corporations that uh, really like Monsanto and others who are bringing in uh, consolidating power, I guess. Um, and uh, in some sectors, the mega corporations are successful and the other side, the, the, the disruptors are. Um, so I want to just look at what's right and, and what's going to happen in terms of the future of, of this within, the, in, within the, the, the kind of visual of this informal sector. Um, so I think what is right, I'll start with what's right and then go on to what's going to happen and then what I think should happen. Um, so I think the first is we need to drive an inclusive economy where we're creating jobs, small business and economic um, activity. We have to create some sort of economic equality. Um, and we have to appreciate and respect the sacrifices and the sweat um, equity um, of those growers who've been growing it um, despite all the odds. Um, and, and uh, you know, we can't just say, oh, well, thank you, Mr. Lamini, who's been doing this and, and feeding your family and stuff. Um, actually, now we're going to have this corporation is going to move in and they're going to set a hydroponic thing up. And, and sorry, you can go and stand in the unemployment queue. Uh, we have to recognize, I mean, that's the same in, uh, you know, in South Africa. We recognize the sacrifices of people who fought against apartheid. In a sense, we have the same here. Um, we need an efficient and, and, and most importantly, ethically correct model, um, which, which can improve growers' productivity, but at the same time, um, you know, take from that and, and, and um, you know, beneficiate and, and um, add value to that process. Um, if you look at the fair trade coffee model, if you look at wool in Lesotho, um, and uh, in, in India, they have a model of, of um, collecting milk from small farmers. Um, and um, if, if we look at those models, my belief is that what should happen is that those growers who are already growing actually should, be, um, should continue to grow it. And uh, if there is any formal economic involvement, it should be taking from those growers 
um, as much as like in the coffee industry and then taking it through the, the, the process of creating oils or lotions or, or whatever it might be. Um, in fact, my brother's running a project in Msinga, which has been hugely successful, which is about using small um, growers, um, breeders of goats, women with three or four goats, and, and helping them with uh, barefoot veterinarians who help breeding programs, feeding programs. Some, uh, some people are, are creating feed and then selling it to the breeders, and they've already generated about 40 million rand a year in sales through these auctions and stuff in this. So the models are there in terms of this kind of thing. But what will happen, um, most probably happen, is that the government will license agribusinesses and larger formal um, industry players, because it's about tax, but most importantly, it's actually about, that's all they know to, how to do even within the formal sector on the legal elements, whether it be the taxi industry and, and uh, the food industry or whatever, they just don't know how to deal with it on a different level. Um, the second thing is that what's going to happen is that everyone's going to invest huge amounts of capex into this kind of thing. There's going to be lots of investors investing money into this. Um, but the margins aren't necessarily there. Um, and we face an, an economy and an industry, I guess, where factors such as the cost of labor and, and uh, eskim and water shortages will all affect any macro or large corporate um, business, which actually tells you it's far better to draw from the small farmers. But it won't happen like that, and people will invest in the Dacha um, uh, businesses. You know, they say, um, they said about the IT industry, in a tornado, even a turkey can fly. Um, so irrespective of, of, the, um, of the financials, I think that's, that's what will happen. So there will be, there's, where there's hype, there's funding, you know. Um, but in the meantime, what's going to happen as that happens is that the informal sector is incredibly resilient. It will continue to dominate in the recreational offerings. Um, and they have the distribution model, they have the product, um, and they know what the person on the street is, is looking for. Um, they may take a bit of a knock on price here and there, but the reality is that the informal sector is, is going to carry on. And pretty soon what's going to happen is, you know, Mrs. Lamini's son, Mandla, who's um, in Msinga, who bought a little pump and an irrigation system, and he's doing very well, it won't take him long before he says, oh, okay, Mrs. Smith in uh, Yeovil wants some, uh, or Rosebank wants some, you know, lotion or oil, and he'll start making a little plan as much as, if you look at the muti industry, it's not all a branch broken off a tree and handed over. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's made into powders and oils and stuff like that. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, so I think you're going to have this parallel thing, this large thing at the one side, and then this illegal... Um, if you want, industry of small growers and distributors on the other hand. Um, and, and that won't change. Let's look at the taxi industry an example. You know, the government have done everything they can to formalize, legalize, bring the taxi industry into the um, thing. They close down routes. They try and get them to go cashless so they can. And the taxi industry, for me, is a perfect example of this, is that the only way that you're actually going to manage that is, 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 is a cooperative um, element. You can't have... Um, you know, formal transport of buses and all that over here and the tax industry on this side and think that the one is going to replace the other. I think in ending, um, 
you know, we're left with what should happen, and I think that's going to be the most important. I think what, what should happen, and I guess where the opportunities are, um, and I think the biggest opportunities are about developing models like that coffee one, which is about small growers um, in the informal sector and protecting them and regulating to look after them, and that the, 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 the formal activity happens in buying from those um, using various models and beneficiating it um, from there. Um, the, um, and I think that, you know, in that model, again, like the coffee model, is then supporting those growers with varieties, with strains, with growing techniques, and all of those kind of elements if you're wanting to improve that crop. Um, you know, the reality is that uh, you can you can tax you can try and tax anyone any way you want, but unless there's a benefit of coming into the system, no one is actually going to try and get a license, and no one is actually going to to pay tax. So the incentive actually would be, from a government perspective, would be to license those growers um, and license companies who are drawing from those gro uh, growers. Um, on, on a carrot and stick kind of basis. We will license you if you pay tax, if, if, if that is what they want. Um, and and what will happen in that model is that growers will sell to informal and formal channels as they wish because both channels are not going to disappear in the near future. I think the reality is that uh, the, the, the formal channel, I guess, the legitimate, legal, or whatever you want to call it channel is the one um, that, that we're probably talking about today. Both will, will exist. Um, and maybe some of the opportunity is actually in, um, not in, in the Dutch industry, but supplying uh, elements to growers. You know, they're all buying Kubota diesel pumps and uh, pipes and uh, Toyota Hilux buckies to transport the peaches to Johannesburg um, and, uh, and so on. And I think that the models that we're thinking of are, are terribly drawn by kind of formal economies like, um, like a Canadian model. <coughs> Um, which is showing signs of strain because there aren't the margins that they thought they are, um, despite it being 100% legal, despite massive in, in, uh, amounts of money being invested in that. Um, so, uh, you know, people like Starbucks have looked at a different kind of model in South America and Africa, Eastern Central Africa. Um, they may not be the right kind of models, but it's a different model from, from the one that we all stuck on at the moment. It's, we see visions of hydroponic, um, you know, rows and rows of hydroponics uh, and uh, lots of fancy equipment. Um, and Mrs. Lamini and her son are going to carry on whipping those people's butts. Thank you. Gigi, thanks a lot. Um, finally, on to Myrtle. Well, it is indeed an honor to be on this esteemed panel for just an ordinary criminal like myself. <laughs> um, I'd just like a show of hands. Um, who uses Dacha? Whoa! <laughs> I think I might be just uh, preaching to the choir here a bit. <laughs> um, as Suresh said in the beginning, what I will be doing is basically summing up what everybody else has said. And what I've prepared for tonight is actually a statement on behalf of civil society, Fields of Green for All being a civil society organization representing all the other uh, ordinary criminals 
like myself. So please forgive me if I read quite a bit, but I think that in summing up what everybody has, has put forward this morning, I think it's very important to make our position as Fields of Green for All really, really clear when it comes to the informal economy of, of cannabis in South Africa. So a constant theme in our campaign for the legal regulation of cannabis in South Africa has been this thing of awareness. How do we make everybody aware? What do we make them aware of? Well, in our experience, the most important thing to emphasize is the awareness of the harms of prohibition over and above the, the, the good of the plant. Everybody says, oh, weed's going to save the world. No, it's not. Prohibition is going to destroy the world for sure. It's, just, it's already destroying so many lives. So it's important to focus our awareness raising. But as we're moving towards legal regulation of cannabis in South Africa, this focus of the awareness needs to go firmly and squarely in the camp of the inform informal economy. We've done all the rest. Everybody knows how bad prohibition is. Everybody knows how many people have been persecuted over the last 100 years. So let's take collectively, as I see we're majority stoners here, Let's collectively start speaking about the informal economy, just like we speak about, oh, cannabis oil has really helped to treat my auntie's cancer. It's, it needs to be part of that, of this debate in the forefront and in the media and amongst ourselves. Everyone who has heard us speak in the last few years knows that the center of our concern, Julian and myself, I'm just being Dacha single today, um, the center of our concern is that person who sells that matchbox of weed at the taxi rank. So some might say that's the bottom of the rung. To us, it's the top. That's our top priority. Because if it is not legal for that person to still put food on the table by selling that matchbox of dacha, then cannabis is not legal in South Africa. And we have to enable that person to continue to putting, uh, as one person said to me, and that is really how, how it is in South Africa. Countless media reports bemoan the fact that South Africa is lagging behind countries like Lesotho and Zimbabwe. Paul Michael touched on this. I strongly disagree. I really don't think that South Africa is lagging behind at all. In Lesotho, our friend who sells vegetables on the street in Maseru, and a little bit of duck on the side, is constantly being har harassed by the police. Over the hills is a fence. And behind that fence is a bunch of foreigners, including South Africans, who have a piece of paper that says that their dacha is legal. Same plant, but different rules for where you fit into the economic spectrum. There is this is nothing for Lesotho to be proud of. Really, investors are lured by a supposedly policy-friendly environment, which is certainly not friendly to their own citizens. There's a similar scenario in Zimbabwe. Prices for the licenses, oh, it started at $5,000 and then suddenly it went to $50,000. And it sounds exactly like Zimbabwe's economy and their inflation. I mean, what is this about $50,000 to be able to grow your insangu? The Zimbabwean government has not released any policy document, any guidelines, or any plan of action for their citizens. We only hear of people jetting up to Harare to meet with government ministers to find out what's in it for them. This is why the, the issue of cannabis legalization and drug policy in general, because remember that cannabis is the gateway to more sane drug policy as a whole. 
This is a human rights issue. And we've been banging on about this for eight years now. We've taken it all the way to the hallowed halls of, of the UN uh, in Vienna and, and in New York. And I even sat there in front of the Global Commission on Drug Policy and I said to them, what are you doing? Yes, you people who are staying in your five-star hotels. What are you doing for us people who had to sell weed in order to fly to Vienna? Because that's what we did. We sold weed so that we could go and represent South Africa in Vienna. And I say that proudly. Because this plant has, in, has always enabled us to do what we can do and to free South African citizens. That's why it's a human rights issue. It's places, it, uh, it places those who, our, our, our judgment in the Constitutional Court in September last year, places those who use and, and cultivate cannabis in the forefront. And that's very important. That's why we're not lagging behind. In fact, our drug policy friends from around the world are in awe of that judgment. It's never happened. And I don't think that South Africans quite realize how significant putting privacy first is for drug policy in the world. It hasn't ever happened before. Unfortunately, we're mired in this complex web of gray areas right now. And you should just see our inbox at Fields of Green for All. I mean, really, what can I do? How much can I grow? What can I do? The, the questions are just endless. They just stream in all day, every single day. But we will not allow our eight years of hard work to be swept under the carpet by copy and paste regulations from overseas. <coughs> so yes, we are in a gray area right now, but we shall overcome. But we shall not overcome that with these copy and paste regulations. This is the 21st century. And we need new solutions to old problems. Because of our vehement opposition to a licensing system, and this has come up quite a bit tonight, we have been accused of promoting a free-for-all. Not so if one takes a deep breath and considers how a self-regulating cannabis industry can work. The stakeholders in this industry are, are as many and as varied as those people in our so-called rainbow nation. Each and every participant in the legal cannabis economy needs to have the opportunity to belong in some way. The illegal, unregulated market is often called organized crime. Well, there's no such thing as disorganized crime, is there? <laughs> We're very organized. I can tell you, as stoners, as growers, as traders, as healers, we're very, very organized down there in the underground, in our so-called black market. We like to call it the unregulated market. We will operate very well within a system that looks at how things are working right now and, and allow us to form what we at Fields of Green for All have called hubs, for want of a better word. That's our term, we like the word. These can cater for everyone from the rich guys who can afford the staffingly strict, strict medical cannabis rules for pharmaceutical products to the person who sells Matchbox at the taxi rack. Hubs can be everything from farmers' cooperatives like the Zimbabwe tobacco model, which connects cultivators and traders while ensuring acceptable standards of quality. To so these hubs can be that kind of cooperative, or they could be something like a cannabis social club, which is along the lines of the Spanish model, which has been very, very successful. And there's quite a few other European countries who've been experiment experimenting with that model too. We like to call these cannabis social clubs DACA private clubs. I was reading in the Daily Maverick the other day about Mark Haywood. 
who's an amazing, amazing veteran civil society activist here in South Africa, and he's one of my heroes. He critiqued South African civil society in his farewell lecture upon retiring from Section 27. He said that activists need to adapt, a contemporary con adapt to contemporary conditions to advance justice and tackle issues of poverty and inequality. Well, as civil society and as a member of NGO, you think that that just is a given, that we're all trying to tackle poverty and, and injustice and inequality. But when you look at the NGO world, we are often dictated to by foreign funders who breathe down your neck and you spend half your time writing reports. It's one of the reasons why, for good or for bad, for better or for worse, Fields of Green has never been funded by anybody. We are only funded by our supporters and the stoners of South Africa. So we've never, never had to write reports for, for foreign funders, thankfully. But it's very difficult for a lot of civil society organizations to actually get down to the work. And I think with cannabis and being a cannabis civil society organization, we have a gap, a gap in the market as it were, because there is already an existing cannabis economy in South Africa. We just need to enable it. It's not as if we have to create something more. We are not behind the other countries. Those who use, cultivate, and trade cannabis in South Africa are racing ahead, and we are still breaking the law almost every single step of the way. I know a lot of you out there tonight and a lot of people out there in South Africa are breaking the law and doing so with integrity, if there is such a thing, breaking the law with integrity. <laughs> we call it principled non-compliance. <laughs> the police are still coming down hard on many of us. Last week was particularly bad with some horrendous arrests. People being incarcerated, Johannesburg citizens being sent to, to Sun City for six days just because they couldn't pay the bail. We will continue to fight for our human rights until the police are taken out of the equation completely. We will not accept a system of regulations that are enforced by the police. We will not stop fighting until the regulators arrive at our business with clipboards, not handcuffs. A hundred years of prohibition has made us resilient. Now, afterwards, we're going to put up our, our little stall outside, and I've got three publications to show you. The first one is about the bigger picture, and it's called Cannabis and Sustainable Development. And this, uh, Fields of Green collaborated together with the Nomad Institute, who are based in Germany. It's our uh, drug policy activist friends who we met at the United Nations. And South Africa, the South African government would be, do really well to read this book because they kind of speak the sustainable development language. Mm. And cannabis ticks nearly all the boxes. Actually, it ticks 17 out of the 25 sustainable development goals set down by the United Nations. So let's use cannabis to try at least go some way to achieving those sustainable, uh, sustainable development goals. Um, otherwise, we might as well just throw them in the bin. Because actually, a lot of these SDGs, all they do is have a meeting about a meeting. And then they have 2015 SDGs. We saw those in 2014 in New York. Then those expired this year in 2019. So they said, oh, don't worry, we'll make some more for 2030. So they move the goalposts <coughs> all the time. So maybe cannabis can go somewhere to actually ticking off some of those boxes with the SDGs. 
Then moving closer to home, we have this book, which is the proposal for the legal regulation of cannabis in South Africa. We've been taking this book on road trips all, over, all around the country. And we always start our presentation by playing Joe Jackson's epic 80s classic called You Can't Get What You Want Until, Unless You Know What You Want. So this book is outlined as a summary. We're busy expanding it of what civil society in South Africa and the cannabis community and existing industry want from regulations. And this outlines in here all of the details, everything from hubs to driving to um, our hatred of licenses. So this is a summary that will be available outside. Getting even closer to home, we've made a little guidebook about the Dacher private clubs. Everybody who's wanting to get into the cannabis industry that's not going to be making a pharmaceutical product might do well to look at setting up a Dacher private club. There can be lots and lots of permutations of this. It doesn't mean that it has to be a venue where people come to smoke weed. There's lots of different ways of doing this. And then lastly of all, we have in its 11th incarnation, we have our Know Your Rights booklet. This is something for you to help yourself. They're free from our stall. Keep it in the, if you're a stoner, keep this in, in the cubbyhole of your car. <laughs> keep it in your handbag. This basically outlines what you can and what you can't do in South Africa. And in the beginning, we have a note and some pictures for the police. Pictures, SAPS. This is what a Dacher plant looks like. This is what cannabis oil looks like. This is what cannabis contract, con contracts look like. Um, and on the inside, it gives you lots and lots of detail of what to do if you're arrested and how to avoid not being, how to avoid being arrested. So please pick up one of your, a copy of, of your Know Your Rights uh, document. And then I'd like to just say thank you very much to Gibbs for inviting us all here tonight. You know, it's been on Jules and my bucket list. Right since the beginning, a friend of ours was doing an MBA here. And we thought, oh, imagine how amazing if we were invited to speak at Gibbs. So that's a dream come true today. And thank you to Suresh for all your work on the panel. Um, and it's been great being here. Thank you. I'd just like to say thank you again to all the panelists and let's open up the floor to questions. <laughs> I think we'll start at the back. Um, Martin Lowe, I'm here in my private capacity. There seems to be a dilemma between regu uh, regulation and non-regulation, which is maybe and in terms of economic development, put better into saying, you know, do we formalize the informal economy <coughs> of this or do we leave it alone? And I think DG Alpha came up with some useful solutions as to how we do that. Um, I'm pleased to hear from everybody that, I'll try and not make a statement, um, I'll try and be as brief as possible, that there's, there's a wanton desire to ensure that the, the, as many people as, as possible profit from this industry once it does become legalized and, you know, I'm very pleased to hear that, and I think that drive needs to continue. Just a question to, 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 to anybody. Who should be driving this, if at all, in the government? Which department? Should be health, agriculture, or economic development, or possibly a combination of them? Thank you. Um, I'd, I'd possibly like to answer part of that. I mean, I think the private sector should drive it. You know, it's businesses, it's individuals, it's entrepreneurs, it's investors. Those are the ones that change policy. Um, 
there can't be any kind of specific government department to drive it. Um, yeah, that's just my... If I may say a little bit about that, I think you're quite spot on in saying that to the extent that there is going to be regulation and there are going to be departments that are tasked with formulating that regulation, it's going to be a hybrid between or an interaction between all of those, those mentioned departments. You know, there, there is an agricultural perspective. Um, there is a medicinal <coughs> perspective. Um, the, the Department um, of Health needs to get involved to the extent that we're dealing with medicine as it is defined, you know, that's, we're, we're talking about quality control, making medicinal claims, etc. but there we're not straying into the territory of the casinomics, of the matchbox sellers, etc. So, you know, this, this legislation, it, it, it has to be pieced together with a lot of thought, um, so as not to exclude people and so as not to, to criminalize the actions of what, of, of people who are already making money, but, um, yeah, what, what that, that final product is going to look like is, is anyone's say, because there's so many vested interests, even at government level. Um, so I would think, in terms of just trying to coordinate and pull or herd the cats, so to speak, perhaps the National Planning Commission, or maybe they could start a ministry of dacha cultivation and <laughs> distribution. But it shouldn't be just with agriculture. It's currently, I mean, I think, if, and I speak under correction, that the Department of Police is where most of the legislation comes from. Well, it's the, it's the Department of Justice. I mean, we, we, we sued, what was it, eight government eight departments. Eight government. Um, you, you know, the, the, there's such a, an intricate web at play here. It, it, of course, affects the Department of Justice because ultimately they're, they're the ones who have to enforce the law at the end of the day. So they have a say as to whether you know, there are, there's a criminological perspective. We have to get criminologists in, into our trial um, to, to, to try to make the case to, to the courts. So there, there of course, is, is an element of justice involved here. Whether, whether it should be a criminal solution or not, um, that's, that's something to be debated. And we would say that, that you, you don't, the, the, the harms of criminal prohibition far outweigh the harms associated with cannabis. So let's keep the police and the courts out of it when it comes to, to enforcing prohibition, if there is any prohibition to enforce. What, we'd like, what we propose is that uh, there's a new like, ministry, but it must be called the Cannabis Ombudsman, with the bud in capital letters. <laughs> um, I think we had a question over there. Sorry. Yes, I'd just like to ask the question to to Paul, um, I find there's a real disjunction between the fact that hemp does not have THC and it should not be classified at all in the same category. Um, why, why? I just thought when we, when we look at legislators, they seem to just ban it all together, where the reality is it should never be. And we should already be looking at massive hemp plants throughout South Africa with massive growing hemp industry throughout, throughout South Africa and really looking at that whole uh, commercialization of hemp. Um, how, do we, how do we try and separate the two? Because I feel that the other one is just so embroiled in, in the whole legalization um, and, and the fact that it, that it has got THC. How do we try and separate the two so we can really start speeding up the hemp aspect of of cannabinoids rather, rather than just getting it lumped in altogether? The, 
the, the insight that I got yesterday is that the relevant departments are looking at um, striking hemp essentially out of the Drugs Act, etc., essentially creating an exclusion. Why it's in there in the first place is, is really just because there was, there was no science that, that went into our legislation. It was, it was uh, a political decision, um, and we, we've actually um, got our historian in the room who, who, who gave evidence in the trial. In fact, it was a racist decision originally. So hemp was just part of Dacha, and we didn't want Dacha, and let's not even talk about there being any distinction um, even though there is a legitimate distinction. The only difficulty, I think, is what I mentioned earlier, and that comes from cross-pollination. And I'm not a farmer, I'm, I'm not a biologist, I don't know how one manages that, um, whether you have to enforce some sort of perimeter around a high THC field to make sure that it doesn't uh, cross-pollinate with all of the hemp fields, I don't know. That's, that's for a scientist to answer. Uh, what the distinction of hemp? Yes. I, I, I think you. I think you would. Um, the, the, but I think if you were to take it to court, the, the short answer would be that the governments they, they would respond saying, "Well, we're considering this anyway." So, yes, I think you probably would win. Okay. Um, could we have Craig next, and then gentlemen, and then towards the right there. Oh, microphone. Someone spoke about capture earlier, and I think that we speak about capture the sort of, uh, as corporate capture in this respect, and I'm not really concerned about corporate capture per se. Um, you know, mega businesses taking over, they've got a, a very specific market that they're aiming towards. The, I think the main threat to the informal economy comes from a, a more of a middle class capture, um, and maybe what we could call an other elite capture. All right, now, I'll try and make this, I'll try and make this brief here. <laughs> so there are two points I'd like to just ask about. The first, the first one is, let's talk about land tenure. All right, in South Africa, we've got a lot of land tenure, um, various land tenure systems. Um, through spatial apartheid and the Bantustan system, the vast majority of the cannabis that we've got cultivating in South Africa is grown on communal land. So the first thing I'd like to ask is, with that in mind, asking, I presume this would go more towards uh, a PM than anyone else there. So how does that affect this notion of, of a private space? Now, if, if someone is living on communal land and they're the major cultivators of cannabis, whether they're selling it or not, that's where the weed is grown. How does this judgment affect um, growers on a communal land tenure system? All right. Then, looking towards legalization, how would a communal land tenure system work? Now, this is where I'm thinking about this other elite capture, where you've got a large variety of traditional leadership systems. All of this communal land is technically administered under customary law. Um, who would be the one to benefit from that? And what kind of capture could we expect there? How do we take that into account? The, the other thing that you've actually just brought up is that we keep talking about weed as if it's weed. Yeah, we distinguish between recreational, medicinal, and hemp. Okay, and we know that if you put hemp next to 
recreational weed, we're going to have cross-pollination. But you have to think beyond that because with recreational cannabis, you've got large genetic variety between uh, two different kinds. I mean, a uh, recreational strain that comes from Afghanistan and grown here is very different to the sativas that are grown here uh, as land races. So how do we protect that genetic diversity? If you're bringing in these super high-powered hybrid strains, they're usually what we call the F1 strains. You plant those here, they cross-pollinate with the land race varieties that you've got in the next door field. One generation will be incredibly strong hybrid vigor, but after that it plummets. And you have a huge variety in the, 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 the quality, the appearance, and, and all that sort of thing. How do you deal with that? And I think that's something that not enough people have thought about. We're looking at the difference between hemp and recreational cannabis, but we're not thinking about genetic variety within recreational cannabis, and I'd like to know how you would approach that. <laughs> okay. Um, <coughs> Paul? I, I think, Craig, I can only answer the first part of your question because I think the second part, I'm, I'm, stumped, at the, I'm stumped at the same level as the difference between high THC cannabis and, and hemp. I'm not quite sure what the solution is to, to preserve the diversity. But um, presumably you're talking about these, these, these uh, people growing on communal land. Um, it's, it's communal, but specific to, to a community. It's, it's administered. It's, it's not like everybody, as I understand it, would have access to that land as a matter of rights, or would they? Um, but, but, you know, it, it comes in to, to how we define what a private space is, assuming that we, we carry on with a regime that only allows an individual to grow personally within a private space. If we were to create an industry so that we allow these people to, to grow, um, you know, to be exempt from criminal prohibition, then you're probably going to have to impose certain restrictions on that, you know, fences, etc. Um, what constitutes sufficient security is, is, is up for debate. But, but I, I think that there are certain restrictions that are legitimate. You know, you, it, it, at the end of the day, it is a drug, whatever, whatever you want to call it a herb, but at the end of the day, it's a psychoactive drug, and you don't want children getting their hands on it, and you don't want theft of it, you don't, you, you, it's, 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 a, it's a crop like tobacco, for example. I, I, I don't know how, how one renders that private, uh, other than legislating entirely afresh, but certainly the new bill doesn't make provision for what you're asking. It's not a private space. Maybe private to that community, but but. I think if I can just um, uh, answer your your second question about the land races and the cross pollination, um, and go back to my point about look at what is happening now. So if you go down to the Eastern Cape and you go to Port St John's, there's um, which is just beautiful. It has to be one of my, one of the most beautiful places in the world, but it's also the Wild West. You know, PSJ, it's weird. That river separates, and on the one side is the whites, and on the other side is the local people, and there's a weird racism thing going on there. There's weird tension. And then plus, in that area is all the foreigners. We say it's all the foreigners who are coming to steal our sun. But those foreigners are essentially maximizing the, the crop in and around the hills around Port St. John's and the, and the former Transkai. So what about going there, 
and researching what they're doing. Because I know that you have to walk quite far now to find people who are growing uh, land race as they always have done. But I remember the one day when we were there um, uh, and we saw, we were having a look at all the people's different crops and it was pretty nice, fat buds, quite crusty, you know, quite high quality, obviously some European strains that had come in. Yeah, there was the odd seed, but it wasn't offensive, you know, it wasn't as if the whole thing was full of seed. But then at the same time, while we were busy chatting to some of the people, there was this little kid who walked past and he was carrying a big bushel of weed, okay? Very stringy looking land racy stuff. And so we stopped this kid and we said, where are you taking that? No, and he said, no, he's taking it for the goats for their bed, okay? So there was the guys growing the dank stuff, okay? And there was the goat bedding being grown. So I don't have the answer to your question, but I think that we should go down to the Eastern Cape and see how they're handling that now. And I think that maybe in the future, if, if um, cannabis is be being grown outdoors in the rural area, the people who are buying that cannabis are going to have to put up with a little bit of seed in their weed. Okay, and as far as preserving the land race is concerned, if it's cross-pollinated, people believe that the land race is lost. No, it's not. It will take some work, but if you keep growing those same, that same F1 over and over again, apparently, according to Franco, who was the greatest strain hunter ever, uh, he said that in three years, that land race will revert back to what it was, back to that F1 land race. So there's a lot of work to be done, but I think that we should go and speak to the farmers in the Eastern Cape first. How do they do it there? Okay, cool. Where are we going? Um, gentleman in the front. Hi. Um, my, my question is multifaceted, but uh, before I, I ask the question, um, I'd, I'd like to say, uh, look, while the, the constitutional um, court ruling is progressive, I think it opened up a can of worms, particularly at low ground. Uh, what it did is we saw an announcement on TV that Dacha is legal, which, is not, which I believe is not completely legal. First, because your policing system still hasn't understood it. They haven't understood the judgment itself, let alone understanding it. They haven't accepted that. Hence, an increase in prosecutions. I believe we've seen an increase in that. Because what's happened, because a lot of people misunderstood that, even from the stoner's perspective. Um, people started to go haywire on possession of marijuana. Now, the, the, there's, the, there's that gap that hasn't been filled from those who are users in understanding what's been passed. As you said, it was a political decision. It was a political judgment. And although progressive, I think it was, it, it, it has a potential of doing, of doing more damage than, than the good that it's intended. So my question is, uh, when it comes to that, is in all these discussions we're having, um, I, I can tell that there is some kind of um, need for progression in this area. Who's listening? I don't see anyone from the Department of Health, Department of mm -hmm. wherever, particularly the Department of Police, because this is where the problem is. You're getting people prosecuted for earning a living, let alone the legal part of it. People are trying to earn a living, but are continuously being arrested because everything is, has been completely understood. You said it. We are in limbo. That's the one question. All right. The, 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 the second question is, 
we, we speak of an informal sector. Are we having conversations with the people on the ground? Because that's where the market is. Um, it's all good and well to be in here and having these conversations about licensing and all of that. Uh, Mam Zamini doesn't care about licensing, you know. Um, I'm looking for the next customer to walk in and buy a bag of weed. Are we having a conversation about getting those people's voices? Actually, there's more to learn from them than what we can impose on them. Um, those are my two questions. Um, the, the Constitutional Court wasn't tasked with re-legislating. Um, they were faced with allegations of rights infringement, and the government failed to justify those rights infringements. So the Constitutional Court said, well, these sections of the Drugs and Drugs Trafficking Act are unconstitutional. What they then do is they give Parliament two years. Parliament ought to be listening. They ought to be learning from the mistakes of foreign jurisdictions, speaking to people on the ground. Um, and within those two years, they're supposed to re-legislate, for example, this bill. Um, they're not, there's nobody from the departments here tonight, but what there is in terms of our law is that this bill is published as a bill, not as an act. And prior to it becoming an act, there's supposed to be this process of public participation and public consultation. So any gripes that you might have with the wording of the bill because you foresee that it might result in more harms than goods or a misunderstanding on the part of law enforcement, go forth and tell Parliament as to what your objections are and how they ought to do it better. Can I answer? So I just, uh, just in terms of the, um, I mean, I think that the, the first thing is no one is, is talking to the, the, um, what, uh, the, the, that informal sector. Um, having said that, there are, is huge concern among growers. I know in Msinga, uh, you know, on the, on the radio, on Okozi, they talk about these, uh, all these farmers' associations getting together and running workshops on how to grow it. And the, and the small growers are extremely concerned about the fact that they are going to be replaced by these formal uh, people. I think that the problem is, is that the government, to a large extent, sees the Dacha industry as hippies and druggies and doesn't see it as a constituency um, of normal people who are growing it um, to make a living. And we need to have advocacy, which actually puts this on the table and makes whoever the decision makers are go beyond the legal issue, but look at the economic and social um, and inclusivity issues as well. And I think that there needs to be more work, um, I'm trying, among others, um, to, to you know, say this, is, this informal sector, these growers or whatever, wherever they are, uh, need to be considered within this. But, but the, the grassroots, the, the seller who's selling the box of matches is saying it's all legal now. Um, but the growers on the ground in, in Eastern Cape and Msinga and wherever it might be, Swaziland um, um, or the edge of Swaziland, Bumalanga, are, um, are concerned and they need to be considered. I think so. I'd just like to just to speak about the police for a minute. You know, in a massive knee jerk, our Minister of Police said uh, the day after the judgment, he said, oh, well, we've got to realize that Dacha is still a gateway drug. You know, I think there's massive ignorance amongst the police. Uh, there's no will at all because they, and I, I mean, I make no bones about it, I hate the police, okay? And I use that word, hate, okay? Yeah. Um, uh, and a terrible, terrible ignorance. 
You know why? Because either they're corrupt and it's taking all the cool drink money, okay, or it's taking the quota system. You know, the quota system, oh, go out, I want, says, a, says the captain of Sophia Town Police, I, I, I know I've got this on good authority, I want 20 Dachau arrests this week, you know. So it's the quotas and it's ignorance and it's absolute ignorance coming all the way from the top. And I could go on and on and on, but if anybody in this room can get me uh, an, o an audience with General Becky Kele, I will tell him to his face that I hate him. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've got a question for the gentleman with the jacket at the back. Uh, my name is Piet van der Hoeven. I operate in the industry in a whole lot of capacities. Um, I want to give you a different perspective. At the Mail and Guardian conference, <clears throat> I was there, I was a speaker. There are permits. They're being issued by uh, something called the Cannabis Development Council. There are departments involved. I personally met with the DG of Health. I've engaged with DTI. Um, there are people engaging with DAF. There are people uh, engaging with ARC, CSIR. I can list them. There is a lot happening in this industry. There is a drive to empower the small farmers. There's a drive to completely make hemp permits as easy as getting a car license. There's a process where over 100 people have applied for permits. 30 people have already got permits, signed off by the Department of Health. There's a process for IKS where you can have a two-hectare limit and you can grow cannabis. It's happening. So, yeah. so just the perspective is the government is getting involved. I've consulted to DTI, wrote a 100-page report of, of, about how to structure the industry. They're not doing nothing. There are organizations like the CDC, warts and all, that are working. On Saturday, Sunday, there was a, a workshop in Soweto training people in the basics of cannabis growth production business. Um, there was a meeting with the Department of Health today with the Director General. One of the things on the agenda is an interdepartmental meeting with all branches of government. There was a meeting last week with a brigadier from the police to object to this uh, arresting, um, the issues of expungement of records were raised. The policies, the draft policy on responsible adult use has been written. And the meeting I was in with the DG, she opened it up. She said, you as an industry, tell us what to do. So in a funny way, the government is doing what they can with the right motivation, and the industry needs to mobilize. And what I've been trying to do for a long time, and this is a fantastic forum, is to take the cannabis culture industry, of which people like Myrtle and Jules are leaders, the CDC are also out there, and connect them with the business skills that sit in a room like this. Because if we put those two things together, there are people around the world looking at what's happening in South Africa, saying this country is going to get it right. This is going to be a cannabis haven. We all come from history with a long string of mistakes. I don't care who you are, but nothing has been done properly in the last 20 years. Here's an opportunity for business to unite with grassroots. There are models that can include uh, small farmers. I personally had a meeting with SABS. The SABS is now going to write international standards for rural cultivation of cannabis and put that into the global market, because that's the one thing 
and the weapon that's being used against South Africa. There is a drive by foreigners to colonize Africa again and turn us into farmers, and they'll take all the spoils, benefit it overseas, sell it back to us for double the price. But there's a lot of people fighting against this. So there is a lot happening in this industry. And it's, you know, it's very easy to slam and condemn governments, and I promise you this is one of the first times I'm standing up and defending them. Um, but government's trying. They need help. We need the help of the people and the brains and the connection of business and discipline and law and policy to connect with the, the cannabis culture who have the stripes, as, as one of the speakers raised. They've been in the industry. They know it. So I just hope that will just add a slightly different perspective. There is a lot going on. The next round of permits should be another 100 permits. If you want a permit, you want to get into the industry, you can get it on a two-page application. There is a, there is a debate, and Myrtle's shaking her head, and Michael said, no, you cannot commercially sell the product. Well, I disagree. And why bother? Um, <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of issues. You want to talk about hemp and INCB. Hemp was never part of INCB, okay? And the, the drive right now is to separate hemp completely. Michael referred to tobacco. You don't need a permit to grow tobacco. If I grow soya beans and I want to change it to millies, I don't go to a department to get a permit. The fundamental mistake here is we're trying to regulate a plant and not a product. And until we realize that and go, the whole structure of what we're doing is fundamentally wrong. I can go to the garden shop and buy a poppy. Does that mean I'm going to make heroin? I can go and have sugar cane. It ends up in rum. Does that mean I can't grow sugar cane? We need to go back to the basics, challenge the legislation, not follow what's being happened overseas. It started with greed and corruption out of America. And we are now following down it. And I appeal to everybody, we can do it differently in this country and absolutely include the small farmers. That's going to be the last question for the night. We're just about to finish up. Oh, um, just want to say thank you to everyone again. And just another round of applause to our panelists, please. Hi, excuse me. Excuse me. Hello. Uh, hi, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I just actually want to add on what he said. Um, there are um, spaces to get permits to grow, and last week CBD was descheduled, meaning you can make products and sell them without a, um, a, per a permit or a prescription for a doctor for CB CBD products, meaning um, lotions, balms, everything less than 20% CBD content can be sold anywhere. Excuse me? Excuse me? <laughs> that was cool, thank you, darling. 